Welcome to The Third Rail Entrepreneur, a podcast about enrichment. Enrichment of your mind, your relationships, your body, and ultimately your business via the entrepreneurial path. My name is Alistair MacDonald. Let's get started. Over the course of the last five weeks, over 30 million Americans have filed for unemployment. At the same time, Amazon's stock is so high that the company itself is valued at over $1 trillion. The 10-year bond is under 1%. Mortgage rates sit around 3%, the lowest in history. It's probably worth asking if we're going to understand what it is that's actually going on in the world, I am going to invite you to a sweeping history of the recent past to explain how we got to now. After all, if we're to get any perspective about probabilities and likelihoods of various outcomes going forward, we need to understand the precedent. We need to know what it is that simultaneously drives interest rates to zero and companies' valuations to a trillion dollars in the face of 30 million Americans unemployed. What looks and feels like a giant twisted bowl of spaghetti that is impossible to splice apart is only so because we're too close to the coalface. So join me as we step back and look at the last several decades and get a sense of how exactly we got to now. 1941, the United States was attacked in Pearl Harbor by Japan. Within four weeks, stocks bottomed after what had been a horrific Great Depression. And at the time, the United States trundled off to join the war both in the Pacific and, of course, in Europe. That attack in Pearl Harbor turned out to mark the bottom in U.S. stock prices for the next 75 years. For those courageous enough to buy in the face of such horrific news, they were buying at valuations that would turn out to be multi-generational in their impact and potential. With the war, of course, America turned to each other. Industrial supply boomed. American women moved into the workforce like a tsunami wave of additional firepower simultaneously increasing the physical capacity and the industrial capacity of the United States to cater to the needs of, as we would say back then, our boys on the front lines. Time passed, and we know what happened next. G.I. Joe returned to the United States with a pent-up demand of his own, and what followed was the largest baby boom in U.S. history. As we moved into the 1950s, this increased capacity, industrial and human, for production, sowed the seeds for America's largest economic boom. Through the 50s and 60s, the United States created more household wealth than at any point in history. We bought TVs and homes and cars and a dual income now that mom was working too, though not as much as today, meant that Americans had more discretionary savings and lower and lower cost of discretionary goods, TVs and so forth. 
This boom reverberated around the world, taking stocks and valuations and American household wealth to a peak in 1968 and 69. We were so wealthy, and with that wealth, so optimistic, that we were forced, of course, to reach for the stars. The Apollo mission landed on the moon in 1969, marking the absolute peak in not just optimism, but the economic cycle itself. After that, stocks collapsed into a horrific bear market in the 1970s. A double-dip recession in 1972 and 1974 completely changed America's understanding of inflation. What had been asset price inflation in the 50s and 60s turned into consumer price inflation. Inflation hit double digits, the United States cranked up its military adventures in Vietnam, and things got dark. Kent State, Nixon was ousted with difficult times. But this was not much of a long-term issue for the average American worker. G.I. Joe and G.I. Joe's son, born between 1945 and 1964, were, of course, the baby boom generation. They had grown up in a strange split dual experience of both the opulence of the first 15-20 years of their life and the difficulty of the next 10. By 1980-81, these baby boomers were about age 30 and hitting their earnings prime for their career. The environment that their parents had grown up in had one distinctive feature that had changed almost imperceptibly for the baby boomers themselves. They were super bullish about their own careers, adamant that they were going to recreate the boom years of their youth, the 50s and 60s, and set off with aplomb, creating an entire new boom of the technology industry, fundamentally changing the nature of productivity, information flows, and the speed at which we can do business. Technology has a deflationary superpower driving down the costs of goods while simultaneously increasing the speed and velocity at which we can manufacture goods and communicate with each other. The technology boom that we enjoy today, and all these young millennials that we're absolutely in love with for their billionaire status, were built on the backs of the creativity and hard work of a select few members of these baby boomers. Larry Ellison, Bill Gates, and even old Ross Perot. Again, there was a big difference, though, between Jack and Jill and their parents, who had been working for large corporations in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. These corporations assured a family of a healthy, good financial living and a lovely lifestyle, one largely born of peace and domestic tranquility until the 1970s. But there was something else that they had going for them. Defined benefit plans. Pension plans were one of the primary ways that corporations could attract and retain the best talent in the American corporate world. Defined benefit plans, otherwise known as pension plans, were ones in which the company would take the burden of managing the risk and saving the capital for these workers in their retirement years. This changed, as I say, imperceptibly in 1978 with the creation of the 401k. What was then not really referred to by the term 401k, which is of course its legislative number, its actual status number with the IRS, 
but what we now know as defined contribution plans. This switcheroo was one of the greatest sleights of hand that has ever befallen the American household. The subtle and <laughs> simple shift in language was, as I say, imperceptible. We went from defined benefit to defined contribution. Not working for me will get you this when you retire, but working for me will give you an opportunity to take more of your own money and put it into this plan. Corporations completely abdicated the responsibility they previously carried for the future financial well-being of their employees. Now, I have no opinion about the ethics of this or the morality. This was something that everybody participated in. In fact, when the defined contribution retirement account, individual retirement accounts and 401ks were first created, the idea was that these would be supplemental. These were never created to replace pension funds. Americans were told at the time, hey, you will get a gold watch and $3,000 a month or what have you in your retirement in perpetuity. And in many cases, especially in the more cyclically robust and recessionary strong companies and industries such as utilities and so forth, those pension benefits would actually have survivability. They would be able to be passed on to a spouse in the event of someone dying. These were almost multi-generational support systems that created a completely different social safety net for all of America's working force. But 1978, the simple little shift, we moved from defined benefit to defined contribution. Instead of what you know you can count on from me, it's what you know you can count on from you. Nonetheless, Coupled with the ingenuity and the appetites for creative technological inventions, America's economy started to accelerate. The recession of 1981 and 82 was a brutal one. Interest rates were at double digits. If you were going to buy a mortgage, you would expect to pay 15% in interest. As I say at the beginning of our conversation, those same interest rates now sit at 3%. So as Jack and Jill looked at their parents, who by now were comfortably retired, what we refer to as the greatest generation, who had a distinct habit that the boomers did not, which was savings, Jack and Jill looked at their parents and said, no problem, all that we need to do is save up $500,000 or $100,000, and when we retire, in X number of years, 20, 30 years, again, at this time, they were around age 30. All we need to do is take our 100,000, 1 million, whatever it is, and we'll put it in the same safe, trusty investments that have stood our parents' pensions so well over all these years, which then, again, were paying 15%. So my $100,000 a year would create an income stream for me, guaranteed by the U.S. government, of $15,000 a year. The more successful of those boomers could plan on saving a million dollars, the much-coveted and infamous millionaire status. All they would have to do is to save a million dollars, and their bond portfolio of incredible safety would produce $150,000 a year in income, dwarfing anything their parents had ever seen. So, loading up on their own retirement plans, which now were the 401ks, 
they started investing aggressively in the U.S. stock market. The bottom of the recession in 81 and 82 created the greatest buying opportunity that they would ever see. Stocks began to rip higher. The higher they went, the more people invested in them. The more people invested in them, the higher they went. All the while, these same boomers were out on their own. There was no pension plan that was going to bail them out. But no problem. My stock retirement portfolio was booming. This trend continued on with incredible, incredible upside through the 80s and 90s to a couple of the largest periods of also economic expansion in the United States. In fact, at the time, the bull market from 1991 to 2000 was then the largest in U.S. history. It took homes, but largely stocks and bonds and corporate bonds, both governmental and corporate, to levels that nobody could ever have imagined. The dream of the baby boomers was alive and well. That million-dollar target, coupled with the retirement portfolio and the newly incentivized and created stock option plan for them, almost assured them of a life of opulence and better than their dreams. But something was shifting. Interest rates were no longer 15%. In fact, by early 2000, they were at 6%. That same million dollars that the boomer had actually been able to save would now only pay them $60,000 a year. No problem. What they lacked in yield and income, they would make up for by owning more technology stocks. The darling of their attention at the time, and an area that I fell straight headfirst into when I arrived in the United States in the late 90s. I was equally convinced by the power of the social conviction that tech stocks were the place to be. Unfortunately, investors were rewarded for this. But unfortunately, because it was temporary. Before long, the NASDAQ, the darling of the technology companies, any tech company that wanted to list, whether it was Microsoft or Apple or anyone else, had to be seen on the NASDAQ exchange. The New York Stock Exchange was for old gray guys in leather-walled offices. Nobody understood this new economy that they had invented. But, as I say, before long, the dream turned into a wake-up with a serious hangover. The Nasdaq fell 76% over the space of the next 18 months, devastating American retirement portfolios. In an effort to support the economy, the Federal Reserve leaned to the only two tools it really has, lowering interest rates and increasing the amount of credit available to a select few institutions in the hopes that they would be able to turn those funds around and lend them out to consumers. It seemed like a good deal. The Federal Reserve would lend money to, say, Bank of America at 3% on their overnight rate, and Bank of America would turn around and repurpose those into 18% for a super sketchy character's credit card, or 9% for a mortgage, and on and on, making a handy profit on the difference between the 3% they were borrowing it from the feds and the average 7, 8, or 9% they were getting from their various portfolios of borrowers. This was good business. If you've ever wondered why L.L. Bean has a credit card, the answer is inside that fact. 
The boomers were disappointed, of course, with this hard downturn in their darling technology stocks and the industry which they had effectively built and created in the, the 70s and 80s. No matter. There had to be somewhere else to go. Where is it that we could go and assure ourselves of greater gains, given that now, with the Fed driving interest rates lower, that 6% on those 30-year government bonds was suddenly at 4 Things were getting worse. What was a retiree or a planned retiree to do? Real estate. After all, no one's making any more land. All that I need to do is buy up some rental properties. $100,000 property, and I'll rent it out for $1,000 a month or what have you. And voila, a 12% annual return, three times that of their government bonds. was such a great idea that everybody started doing it. Before we knew it, real estate prices had gone parabolic, reaching a bubble peak in 05-06, where in the bidding war that breaks out in an auction system, which we've discussed previously, but the housing market, of course, is an auction system, more and more buyers, less and less sellers, prices are driven to the sky. And that's what happened. Property prices reached levels that were so ridiculous that in the state of California alone, where historically banks would not lend more than three times your gross household income, lending was reaching people with zero doc paperwork, as in money was being lent to potential home buyers with no verification of their income at all. So as opposed to three times their income, it was, for purposes of calculating the risk, infinity. The median home in the United States was five times the average purchasing capability of the median household earner. This meant that only about 8% of those in the state of California could actually afford to buy the median home, using the old rule of thumb that bankers had used for a 100 years, three times your gross household income. As with every darling, the ruse was finally up. The Minsky moment arrived, and prices began to tumble. As they leveled off and turned down, lenders stopped lending. And the supply of capital, this seemingly endless supply of capital, came to an end. Borrowers became nervous to borrow more because their property prices were falling, and lenders became even more nervous about lending. This is the crux piece about the U.S. economy. We are a credit-based system that requires both a willing borrower and a willing lender. Lenders closed their doors. Borrowers were desperate. Property prices imploded 36%, the greatest decline in home prices in U.S. history. What was a boomer to do? Their property prices had fallen. Their grand vision of reaching retirement was now thwarted. There had to be somewhere else to go. Collateralized loan obligations. The securitization of everything from commercial airlines to rental car fleets had picked up and run amok through Wall Street. By 2007, corporate bonds had reached a level of $7 trillion. The investors in real estate had jumped out of the pot and into the fire. What followed over the next 18 months from October of 2007 to March of 2009 was the largest financial crisis since the Great Depression. Stocks fell 56%, 
unemployment reached almost double digits. These poor boomers just couldn't get a break. By this time, their dreams of saving the million dollars, even if they were successful, in that same scenario of investing it in safe old government bonds, they were now suddenly looking at a yield of 3.5%. That million dollars a year that they had saved living in the Bay Area was going to produce $35,000 in income. That's less than the median household income in the entire United States. What were these Californians to do to stick with the same theme of California? They had to move to areas that their money would go further. So off they trundled to Colorado, Arizona, Bend, Oregon, the Pacific Northwest, Portland, Maine, and on and on, North Carolina. All of this money accumulated in the highest income-earning state, moving to areas of higher impact. This is the entrepreneurial premise. Moving resources from areas of low return to high return. And with it, the backlash of locals. Stay in California, etc., etc. Californians trundled across the United States and took the capital they had saved in their retirement accounts and their home values and turned it into two homes or a home twice the size in Scottsdale, Arizona or Chapel Hill, North Carolina. But there they were, still struggling for income. What were they to do? That's where we go next. The premise here is the demand. Where is it coming from? In our next episode, we're going to talk about the supply. Who is it that is catering to the seemingly insurmountable problem that boomers are feeling? Before I leave you today, I want to just point out how large an impact the need how large an impact the demand from these boomers actually is. Here's some statistics. Almost 10,000 baby boomers turn 65 every single day. In 2031, the U.S. population over the age of 65 will number 75 million. That is double what it was in 2008. What about savings? How well prepared are these people? Baby boomers have an average of $152,000 saved for retirement. That's according to the 19th Annual Retirement Survey of Workers, which is conducted by Transamerica Center for Retirement Studies. Based on information from the BLS, or the Bureau of Labor Statistics, adults between ages 65 and 74 spend on average $48,885 a year. That means that the average boomer has approximately three years' worth of retirement income saved. The Insured Retirement Institute found that 45% of these boomers have zero retirement savings. Zero. Out of the 55% who do, 28 of them have less than $100,000, which is, again, less than two years of retirement savings. They have Social Security, of course. Entirely true. According to Social Security, 90% of retirees today receive Social Security benefits. 90%. That's in contrast to just 69% of retirees in 1962. This, going back to the earlier point, mom and dad didn't need Social Security. Their pension took care of their needs. 
So the average Social Security benefit today, in 2020, is $1,503 per month, substantially less than the average wage, which is approximately 3668 The shortfall of $2,000 has to come from somewhere. Who will cater to this demand? That's what's next. That's it for this episode. Thanks for being here. Hey, there's only two things that you have in your life, your time and your attention, that you've given both to me for these few minutes of today means everything. Cheers. Cheers.